Welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you space burgers out there. Uh, breaking news, One-Headed Beast, the special I made years ago with the help of a bunch of animators and artists, is available to stream on Amazon Prime. If you haven't checked it out, we put a ton of effort into it. It's a, it's a stand-up special. If you've listened to my album, One-Headed Beast, just the audio, it's that, but with a bunch of cool visuals. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, but you'll see. It's different. It's fun. Real pretty. A lot of help from Penelope, who listens to this show. Set designing things. Carly White, um, Paige Steele, Timothy Bond really helped create an aesthetic. Tons of art that uh, you see in in like the physical form. And then too many animators to list who helped create um, the sort of moving visuals that you see throughout it. So hard to explain much more than that but anyway it just randomly appeared i didn't get an email or anything just happened to uh uh hear from from someone that was looking at or, uh, some something they were attached to on amazon and say hey i'm uh i'm listed as someone that's involved in this project that's also on amazon prime and it's uh, it's your thing so it's it just appeared and i don't know how long it will be there but if you never got a chance to see it Now's as good a chance as any. If you have Amazon Prime, there's a good way to see it for free. And, uh, and let me know what you think. If you rate or review or subscribe it, or no, you don't subscribe to that. That's podcast talk. Uh, but if you rate or review it, potentially it helps the algorithm um, make it more discoverable. I don't know. But I'd appreciate it if you did that. But even if you just watch it, that's that's what we make stuff for, right? So hope you hope you like it. If you're downloading this or it just magically appeared in your phone, I assume you subscribed a while ago and uh, you get a little notification that says, "Hey, there's a new space cave." You might have noticed the new logo. Um, I've been probably meaning to do that since uh, right after the original logo went up, which I never liked or disliked, but I just kind of. I didn't, I didn't know how important that was. I just wanted to have something out there. Whereas the, the new one, this this cave, is something that I drew. So it's slightly more, I don't know, personal? I don't know what the right word would be. But I feel like it fits the, the show a little better. Who knows? Let me know your thoughts on that. Hot button issue, a new logo on the Twitter. It's not really on the website, but... Um, and then on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. So... Hope you enjoy that. If it looks foreign, you're like, wait, what happened to the... It's just a new logo. Relax. Everything's fine. Everything's just the same. And welcome to uh, Quentin Pike, our newest $5 patron. We dipped a little bit. I think I jinxed us and said we were inching close to like 50 Patreon people, and then it dipped back down, and then now it's climbed back up a little bit. And I know sometimes people just want to contribute for a little while, and or maybe your financial circumstances change a bit, or you're not listening to the show as much. I don't know. Certainly not going to hold that against you, but I I appreciate it when uh, when you do make time. So thanks, Quentin, and keep a heads up on your mail for little gifts and things that come your way. When you when you are a Patreon member, you get bonus stuff. 
usually once a month, if not more often, behind the scenes chats, things like that. I'm doing some live shows. I'll get to this at the end, actually. No, I'll do it now. Sorry for the fake out. Check out davidhunsberger.com slash shows. I'll be in San Francisco and Sacramento, Portland, Minneapolis, Austin, a whole bunch of places. So if you live in any of those spots, come out and say hello, and I'll uh, I'll be doing live stand-up comedy, and uh, hopefully you'll have watched One-Headed Beast before then. Okay, that's it. Let's let's get down to some hardcore chatting. This is part two. This is why you're, you're listening to this, because you already heard part one. You're like, I want to see how it turns out. And here I am blathering away. I apologize. But the One-Headed Beast thing was pretty, pretty exciting, just that we had all kind of given up anyone ever getting a chance to see it. And now it's on one of these um, big platforms. So hopefully more people see it. And what if they all hate it? Well, that's the chance you take. Who knows? Uh, I don't think that'll be the case. I hope you like it. All right. Um, Sheila and Davi are back. We're having more beer, more chatting. Here you go. I don't want to get you in trouble with that, but you were saying (laughs) (laughs) the concept of buying a house you were talking about as we were in our little break. Uh, and the, are you, were you starting to suggest like you have misgivings because of like the footprint it creates? Or? Yeah, I mean, I have, and I think this is not just for buying a house. This is for living my life. Like I know things that I should be doing that mm. would be better for me, better for the planet. But like, there's information out there that's well documented and well supported by different kinds of research. But I also just have my general opinion. So, like, my wife and I are interested in buying a house when we can afford it, you know? And, like, I recognize that there are more sustainable ways to live. If, if you have well-designed, higher-density housing in the cities, don't have urban, uh, suburban sprawl, right. destroying wildlands, we don't need that much space. You have a building with a green roof, and it's LEED-certified, and you got everything you need. That That's the better way to live for the planet. But we also have our opinion. Like, we have our kid. I'd like him to have a yard. Like, yeah. I'd like to be able to ha- live on a street that has, you know, that he can go run out and play and not worry about, like, a train or 10 cars driving by every 30 seconds. And so, you know, I make these decisions that are good for me, even though I know better. And I don't know what that makes me a terrible person I think that not, ties into what um, Sheila had kind of ended with, the last one that brought up a thought that I had, which is I have... I think everyone does, at least if they're trying to be cognizant of it or aware. And maybe people are just driving cars that spew heavy exhausts and going, ah, eh, what are you going to do? We're just right. humanity. But I'd like to think that everyone is looking for a recycling bin after they got, went, I didn't want to have a, this plastic bottle, but I really wanted tea or something. Right. So I had to buy it. And maybe they just chuck it, but hopefully they go find a place to go, all right, I hope this is going somewhere to be recycled. I go to friends' houses that have enormous amounts of space, and part of me feels like, this would be nice. And mm-hmm. then I go, I don't think I need that big of a totally. closet. I can fit everything I have in a little space that I have, and I feel like there's some value in that. Yeah. So we're all doing that. And yet, what you talked about, like we are the prevailing species here that is, whether it's predetermined, like we're kind of, we are driven to make more of ourselves, to spread mm-hmm. out, to grow. Yeah. Would every species have done that if it had the ability? Are we just part of a game that is inevitably going to cover the planet? And the weirdest part about that is that we feel bad about it, like that we right. feel, we did it in, a, in an inaccurate way. Right. Well, I think trying to personify some of those things, it's like what does survival and reproduction mean? Like, I mean, I 
would like to survive and you know I have a son I don't necessarily need more but we'll see what happens <laughs> um, but like I'm here drinking this Bundaberg ginger beer that has 40 grams of sugar in it like mm -hmm. I know this is bad for me yeah. I'm making the decision to drink it because it's delicious anyway right mm -hmm. like it's not like we're out there making these decisions all the time to say what's going to keep me alive the longest using the most resources we kind of just do our thing and I like to think that we can be forgiving of one another for not always making the best decisions as long as we are trying to make the best decisions we can. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned this before, like there are systemic issues that we need to deal with as a society that I think are pressing as well. And so, you know, I might occasionally buy a Gatorade because I'm not feeling well. And that plastic bottle, I feel terrible about it. Mm -hmm. And I try not to buy them, but I do every once in a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is coming from two people that are as educated as you can get on the totally. subject. As in-depth, in like your knowledge is as... I would, I would guess. I would say statistically. Oh, we're definitely the <laughs> most knowledgeable. On this You're for sure the top one percent. Very like. It's the only thing we maybe one percent in ever. Yeah. Right? So. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so I think you know, I actually have not met Zev, but Davi and I don't. We have different views on that alone, and we've talked about that before. I have no intention of having biological children, and for me, that is one major thing I can do to limit my carbon footprint. Um, but maybe, you know, and I know Davi does things that he's better at in terms of reducing his carbon footprint. And we, you know, we can be, for, like you said, for, I forgive you for having a child. <laughs> but like, I mean, really, it is, it's a big, it's a big decision to make in a time like this to have children and to have even more than one child, especially. And, but I love all of my friends and family that have kids. I love their children. I support their choice to do that. It's not the choice I would make, but we have to all individually do what's right for us. And so one of the things I think that's interesting getting back to the biological stuff is, well, it's all related, but survival and reproduction. Um, and I always talk about this with my students, and I'm pretty open about, like, I'm, you know, I have no intention of having biological children. If I ever do start a family, it will be through adoption. But um, I, if my sister, for example, has a biological child, I am genetically related to that child. And yeah. so by the rule, <laughs> I have survived and reproduced, quote unquote, because my genes have still been passed yeah. on, at least part of them. And so I like to talk about those kinds of things. It's not, it's survive and reproduce, and it's not just this like concrete idea. And like you're saying with the ginger beer, right? We, it's, th does this lead to your survival? No, but it is in essence sustenance. <laughs> like it, and, you know, there's a reason why we are, driven to eat large amounts of sugar because years and years ago 200,000 years ago that was not something you came across often right. and it's a great source of energy and so evolutionarily we're still that genetically driven to eat high amounts of sugar like because the, it's the dopamine release is still yeah, pretty similar right exactly yeah because you should eat it if you're a nomad <laughs> wandering around and like you know clocking lots of miles no one had Fitbits or Apple watches then though they had no idea how many steps they were getting <laughs> lucky <laughs> they're so lucky back then yeah well, I don't want to jeopardize your standing with your respective institutions <laughs> but that being said the preface that this thought which is like we forgive ourselves mm -hmm. I just need this tea 
or we and we I feel like we mostly forgive everyone else. We kind of go we see someone just chuck a, an empty plastic bottle out the window of their car. We go, well, they're either they weren't educated very well, or maybe they have some philosophical ideology about what this all is, where none of it matters, and we're on this burning ship. Who cares? You know, ah, I can't really blame you there, buddy. What right. you know, whatever's happening there. But the thing that drives me the craziest when these like ideologies get separated is that, on some level, the facts that we say are these are. Not science doesn't have facts, but we do have no. things that like we're pretty certain it's this. Mm-hmm. The planet is our only source that we know of for resources, etc. If the if people that follow the Bible can construe "shall not lay with a man" into we there are no room for them in this religion. How has the Garden of Eden or that concept not in some way? Like you have people that fly jets all around the world to proselytize and things like that how why wouldn't it be nice if that had more of an impact on certain religions that like the planet is above all else something we should preserve and care about Javi can speak to this Javi is religious I'm not but you could I mean I feel like in some ways there's a false dichotomy and in some ways it's it's a supported false dichotomy where like I know plenty of religious people that care very much about environmental issues and are championing those things around the world or some of them making the decision not to go around the world because we recognize that that has terrible environmental <laughs> right, impact and yeah. so um, I don't think that religion inherently suggests that we are more important than the planet therefore screw the planet let's just worry about us Um, I think maybe some people have interpreted things that way Mm -hmm. Um, people interpret all sorts of things in different ways and some people have more power than other people and (laughs) there's again lots of different avenues we could take with this conversation but I think that there are a lot of people using religious pulpits and platforms of all types to say like hey maybe we can do something better maybe we Mm -hmm. do have a responsibility for the planet and they're using it powerfully and responsibly and i think it's great and i think there's people using completely non-religious and sometimes academic sometimes political platform like people are there are great people doing great things across all walks of (laughs) life and that's about as diplomatic as i think i can be (laughs) okay what about this then what if for this analogy in the last episode you talked about um carving a sculpture and saying like we're kind of going here we're trying to so uh, michelangelo used to, people used to ask him like how'd you carve that and he goes easy i just took away everything that wasn't an angel right. or whatever it was so yeah. if we are then purposely going to make an angel or say in this case something more simple like a sphere with a two foot diameter so we know what we're trying to get and we chip away all this stuff and in the end we have exactly two feet and it's a sphere it's exactly spherical but someone comes over and picks up a shard and goes, this is actually supposed to be part of it. To me, that's the equivalent of like your own dogmas, whether that's from a religious belief or something. And we would look at it and go, but it's, it's not. This is perfectly one sphere. That, that shard is not. How, how do you then bridge that gap of saying, like, I know you think that's a fact and or part of it, but it, it, we, we categorically ruled that out as being part of it. I mean, I think it's interesting. I- I'm going to steer this in a slightly different direction because this is a conversation I have with a lot of my my friends and colleagues, which is like, let's say you're you're at your house, you have a wonderful garage, you sit in it a lot okay. for whatever reason. Maybe you're recording a podcast or working on your car or whatever you're doing. Okay. And there in the corner, there's a brown widow, like spider. Uh-huh. And this brown widow is potentially dangerous to you, your dog, your kid, whatever it might be. Yeah. But it's a one of god's creatures or the planet's creatures and it deserves its right to live and all these things so you go and you capture it in a 
mason jar that you don't buy in this neighborhood. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, you're sitting there with this brown widow. Now, what's my responsibility? Do I take it somewhere else and release it into my backyard so this beautiful creature gets to live? Mm-hmm. Because it has as much right to live as any of us, which yeah. I agree with. Or do I kill it? Or do I let it live the rest of its life in this mason jar? And I have to make this decision. And if you are, if, if animal rights is your platform, you yeah. might say, no, I'm going to release this thing so it has the best possible life. It can live under that rock in my backyard where there's yeah. lots of other things for it to eat. Great. If you're, I don't know, a population biologist or conservation biologist, you might say, that's an invasive species. You do not want to release it into this ecosystem. It can wreak havoc. Mm-hmm. So you should either kill it or keep it in your jar, do whatever you want to do, but don't put it into the wild. It doesn't belong there. Totally legitimate stance that I totally believe in. It's, mm-hmm. it's right. Uh, or you might say, I can't keep it in a jar because then it is suffering in a jar and it doesn't belong in a jar. Totally legitimate. They're all right. There's no right or wrong. Like, okay. Once you get beyond a certain point, things become very philosophical. Yeah. And that philosophy doesn't get answered by science. What science can say is this thing was transported here through cargo, it was not, and actually, I don't know how brown widows made their way to North America. Just <laughs> You're to be clear, blaming cargo <laughs> ships, it's but everything. Ship. It, was, <laughs> it was brought here by human-mediated means of some kind. Mm-hmm. It doesn't belong here. I can say that. Mm-hmm. I can say if it goes in the wild, they might be displacing black widows, which are native species, or eating, you know, something that else else that is native. And I can say all those things. What I can't say is what's the right thing to do. Ultimately, yeah, that becomes philosophy. So one of the things that I have, though, started to incorporate in all of my classes, whether it's for majors or non-majors in biology, is a section on environmental ethics. And I talk about basically what Davi just said. And so the three sort of dogmas that we go over are being anthropocentric, so humans come first, biocentric, you know, I believe that other intelligent things, oh no, I'm sorry, not biocentric, pathocentric, (laughs) other um, living intelligent animals that we can empathize with, like our dogs, our horses, whatever it is, animals that, uh, pigs, we know to have a certain level of intelligence. We expect them to have the same or slightly less than rights as we do, which I think where probably a lot of people do fall is empathocentric. We feel sorry for animals that we know to be in pain. But them being biocentric is essentially that all living things have a right to life. And I think that it's very much a spectrum that people kind of fall somewhere on. And for me, I know I'm almost always somewhere between pathocentric and biocentric. I probably skew biocentric, but there's certain times when there's choices that I make that I know it's, you know, to because of me and my dogs and not because <laughs> of like some other animal that might be native to the habitat where we happen to be at the time. But I, I do incorporate that and tell my students kind of what Davi was saying that none of them are wrong and it's really important I think especially in today's political climate to recognize that oh somebody might be viewing the world from this viewpoint and I might be viewing it from this viewpoint and I can respect their decision and they can hopefully respect mine and they could all be in the same biology class and all be planning to go to medical school or go do research and have these same you know, career trajectories with different ethical views. And that's why I've started to do that, including as because it is, I think 
maybe it's because of the graduate group that we went to at UC Davis, there's a lot of different departments that we have access to. It's not just one department, the graduate group in ecology. And so we have the opportunity to take animal behavior classes that are very kind of psychologically based or philosophically based in some degrees and um, other classes that are, you know, very just hardcore science traditionally geared science but I like to kind of include all of that in my classroom and I like the discussions I like people to feel comfortable to bring up their opinions because I think it's one of the things that I believe as a biology professor that we fail our students sometimes with is not recognizing that these are people with opinions and personal viewpoints and they're going to take what they learn in my class but they're going to mix it up in a you know like a shaker with their own viewpoints and so why not take some time to address those and say I come at it from this and I come at it from that and I always start at the beginning of the semester by saying this is a place where everyone's opinion is welcome we do not criticize anyone you might disagree but you can also counter their argument or give your own opinion in a constructive way and I've never had a situation that that didn't work well, I'm sure that will come one day. <laughs> the, uh, the most heated debate was over the woolly mammoth. We had one student that was like, I'd like to have one in my backyard. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> in <laughs> Southern right. California? What a sadistic <laughs> <He>, fellow. <laughs> it, it was a fellow. And it was, I think, just to kind of get people's feathers ruffled a yeah. little bit. Because there were a lot of strong views against the cloning. That of the can, a lot of comedians would do that. There was a phase where it was just, how, how can the I shock. dig myself out of this yeah. hole? Yeah, kind of the yeah. shocking, mm-hmm. like, now I know you're thinking, but hear me. And they'd list yeah, yeah. and suddenly the crowd would kind of, okay. You're right. <laughs> Even the, like, hear me out, I feel like that was, like, part of the shtick. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I teach, well, I was teaching evolution at a Catholic school. Oh, yeah. Which said, I mean. Are you I, a Jesuit? I, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. Yeah. But um, it, I never had a bad situation. I just want to be very clear that mm-hmm. this, this, all the discussions and debates we had were always pleasant, respectful, and everything. And, you know, what's my place as the instructor? Because, again, we can teach what the science has shown and supported. We can teach the method of how the science did that. But ultimately, a lot of things come down to philosophy and opinion. And that's totally up to the student. I can guide conversations but I try not to you know direct them per se Um, and again with those I'm like you have your opinion that's fine Mm -hmm. I I don't actually when I say I don't care I mean I'm not saying it out of like callousness like I don't mind I like and respect you regardless of what your opinion on evolution is Mm -hmm. but what I'm going to teach you is Mm -hmm. why we think evolution works this way and how we arrived at this point of, of thinking this and as long as you learn this whether your opinion changes or not that's not my problem or it's not my goal. It's not, it's, I just want you to learn this. Then take that information, let it inform your decision, make your decision on your own. I think Facebook has been, I haven't been on it for that long, but now I guess it has been a number of years. So I missed the first wave when everyone was talking about it. And now I kind of see the, I feel like there was a, maybe high school or shortly after that, everyone gets exposed to, to go back to the sculpture thing or the mm-hmm. car, like the sphere. And they, okay. But as time goes on, they go back to what their parents put in their heads or what they grew up with, and suddenly they're back to holding that shard and going, the more I think about it, I, I think this shard is actually mm-hmm. a piece of that or, or part of it. And you go, okay, well, that's weird that you would revert back to, does that occur to you at times that like what you're teaching them will, unlike, or much like everything else, we all, we read mar- magazine articles or books and we go, that's in my head now. And two years later, like, I'm trying to think this article, I can't. 
I can't remember it. It all just kind of sieves out a little bit. Well, I think that's what, like going back to my own personal approach to teaching biology is to really do focus on that big, the big picture stuff, because I can speak from my own experience. When I was an undergrad at UVM for my year long majors biology course, I think I had five instructors over the course of that year. So it was like three one semester to another because, again, they're research professors. And so their priority isn't teaching. So they'll teach as little as they can. Now, mm-hmm. there was one, again, Bern Heinrich. He was like the coolest professor, I thought, because <laughs> he just was he would incorporate really cool stuff that I don't know. I still remember examples from his class. And um, but one of the things that I know I missed when I went to my master's degree and had my thesis defense and I was asked big picture questions that I struggled to answer. I could tell you every minute detail of my research and the statistics and defend that, you know, as best I could. But when there were big picture questions, I was kind of like couldn't see the forest for the trees kind of thing. And so because I know that was missing from a good school that I went to for the program that I was in, animal science at UVM is one of the top animal science programs in the country. And I know that was missing from my education. And I really approach it that way. I start with the big picture. We go through all the examples that I know they're going to forget. Like you said, two years from now, they are not going to remember that we talked about, you know, the major differences between gymnosperms and angiosperms (laughs) if they're not going into botany, you know. But they might remember some, like, silly example that I gave them that talks about evolution of plants and why they are a certain way and why, you know, this is an adaptation that has taken shape over generations of time but i think it also ties back to teaching critical thinking and teaching them how to seek out information right Mm -hmm. so if my student doesn't remember what paper or example i went over that's fine but hopefully they do remember oh yeah i can look this up i can go onto web of science or i can think this through i can look at multiple different sources and make an opinion based on good information i can say does this site seem to be particularly slanted or can i look at wikipedia or should i look at this academic site or you know make decisions that allow them to reaffirm their opinion and and their Mm -hmm. opinion should evolve through time like they're learning more information my can't technically evolve that's true. They, <laughs> they change with Ad- time. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say they could adapt? No. They can acclimate. <laughs> they can be altered? I'm just going, yeah. that's always something that drives me nuts. Is right. when people are like, I, I use this too as an example in class. I'm like, you all know that person that like comes back from summer break and they're like, I've evolved so much this year. And it's like, no, you didn't. Right. You as an individual cannot evolve. Right. Populations evolve, right. not individuals. But that's what I mean. Yeah. You use silly things like that and that's what they do remember like oh that's right that's a really silly weird example but they remember stuff like that and that's the kind of stuff that I think I I can't imagine Dobby doesn't use humor in the classroom too I use a lot of humor in the classroom and I think it helps because it's so boring for them to just sit there and listen to you and so then this happened and bacteria do this and it's like I hated that why would I I wouldn't want to be in my own classroom if that's how I taught and so, yeah, giving them the skill set to find the information. We live in a time where they don't need to memorize 
all of these things. They can, there will never, I do say that too, there will never be a point in their careers that they do not have access, with the exception of exams and really exams, that they don't have access to the resources that they need. And more resources than scientists had 50 years ago. I mean, it's incomparable, really, how much different it is. And so the memorization thing, I don't even test that way, really. I test on concepts and not, did you memorize this fact? There are certain things, and in fact, I say that loosely, but, um, you know, I, I think the concept is so much more important than testing their ability to memorize. Totally. Because I hated that. I hated that as an undergrad. I'm like, I get it. In a 300-person lecture, you don't really have a better way to test everybody except by using a Scantron, because how else are you going to grade everything in a timely fashion? And like, I give handwritten exams for every class that I teach. And one of my biggest complaints on student evals is takes too long to grade. And I always tell them, would you rather get your tests back quickly and it be all multiple choice or I can give you a fair exam that actually tests your knowledge on subjects that maybe takes me a little bit longer because you had to write a short essay or, you know, give me some examples of the concepts we're talking about. And, you know, they ultimately do understand it. It's a better way to test them. Well, some students struggle. I feel like I... I similarly don't like to use multiple choice. I like to give kind of open-ended questions mm-hmm. and give students the opportunity to explain their thought process and see what did you incorporate from the class that allowed you to arrive at whatever answer you arrive at. Right. Mm-hmm. But a lot of students struggle with that because they've been taught that science is a laundry list of information or facts. I'm going to memorize these things. I'm going to go in. I'm going to do my multiple choice. I'm going to get out. And then they see my exam. And they're like, yeah. what the heck was that? Yeah. And by their second exam, hopefully they're prepared for it. But it, yeah. can, it can be shocking to a lot of students to be like, wait, you want me to think, think? And, and, and prove to you that I thought? Whoa. <laughs> it is true. I do. I think it's a lot of younger students, too, in my experience, that I, I had a student this past semester who was I think 18 or 19 and you know his second semester of college and my exams terrified him because he was so accustomed to just memorizing what he needed to for the exam and he ultimately did I think the first exam struggled but then got the hang of it it was like oh wait big picture our again our PhD advisor Becca Lewison always used take-home messages I, I got that term from her. I don't know if you had had it previously, but THMs, take-home messages. <laughs> and I always, I use that all the time. Like, this is a take-home message. This, we have just talked about all these other things, but the take-home message of all of this is, you know, survive and reproduce or whatever it happens to be. And that's, I emphasize those things as this is the concept. We have just used all these examples to illustrate this concept. And this is the thing I care about you knowing. These are ways you can show me you know it. I mean, I have this assignment that I give every single one of my classes at the end of the semester or quarter or whatever the term is. Um, And it's write a poem. Write a poem that incorporates more than one thing. So at least two things that you've learned in this class. And it's open. It can rhyme. It can not rhyme. It can be a haiku or a limerick or, you know, an epic. It can be whatever you want, but take. And I think a lot of the students, when they first see that, assignment get really scared because a they have to remember something (laughs) b they're not good at poetry and you're kind of like no no no. i'm not evaluating your your ability to write poems or your i am evaluating your ability to communicate but not your ability to write a poem per se right um but 
ultimately, I think they have a lot of fun, and they, they learn that they know a lot more than they thought they knew in the process of trying to seek out what they wanted to write about. <laughs> um, so it's a lot of fun for me to read them. I think it's a lot of fun for them to write them, ultimately, although it's very scary at first. Do you make them present them? No. Uh, <laughs> we had, there's a professor, I never had Jeremy for anything, but there's a professor at San Diego State, Jeremy Long, who does... Um, I mean, he, he raps. He raps <laughs> lectures. And he has rapped presentations at scientific conferences before Whoa. that I have heard. Yeah. Like an hour long rap? No, no, no like 12, 50, minutes. Like 12 oh, minutes. Yeah. yeah. And, but gone up instead of giving, like, you know, your typical dry, here's my PowerPoint spiel, Jeremy got up and rapped. And there's like all the old school people that are like, Mur. and then there's other people that were like, this is awesome. Like, what a cool different way. So he, I don't know what class it is. I know I have under, I had undergrads that took it. Um, I know chemical ecology oh it's chemical ecology he would have the students at the end of the semester get into group or i guess it was throughout the semester they would be in a group and they had to pick an organism and pick they could pick any existing i don't know if i think it was specific to hip-hop wasn't it i I don't think so but i don't know any music any song and they had to redo it and describe about their organism and then they would make a music video and they were awesome (laughs) i had uh when i was doing my phd i had two students um nan norn now doing his phd and christina coppenrath who just finished her master's my little protégés um they were in a group together and were working on the turtle stuff at the same time and they put together such an awesome video and it was so funny and they were all rapping and singing and like made a music video but it was awesome because the students had to focus on learning different aspects of their organism as a group so much of what we do as scientists is communication and i think it's an area that a lot of scientists lack is the ability to communicate especially to lay people right and non-scientists yeah, fine. Um, but, you know, all, all of that kind of thing, like Davi making, having his students write poems or whether it's a music video, stuff like that, that gets them out of their shell and still is focused on what they learned. I need to do something. I don't do something like that. People never associate that with school either. They yeah. think of the dry sort of remembering, just plotting through mm-hmm. it. And the fact that teachers want you to be invested, they want you to be, like passion is probably an overused word or maybe not accurate, but but some level of like yeah. enthusiasm. Engaged. The engaged. Very least, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, and this is a kind of side note from that, but the interaction of science and art Mm. leads to amazing things like not in my experience (laughs) (laughs) i'd love to hear that (laughs) it's a whole nother podcast (laughs) Um, but again i think it's funny because like i find this i'm like i'm gonna let you express yourself write a poem and some of them like well poems don't express me that's not my jam i'm like well draw a picture what what is your i mean it does open dialogue like i have had students be like i don't want to write a poem i'm like what do you want to do and i've had students write songs i've had students draw pictures i've had students do all sorts of other things that relay and communicate information Mm -hmm. but also trigger them to realize what they know Mm -hmm. and that's the key it's like you just sat through a semester of information that I've been throwing at you in hopefully fun ways but I've been throwing at you like let's see what you've learned like show me what you've learned I like to think of you coming in on the day that you assign this and you're wearing like a black turtleneck and a beret (laughs) and you're like here cats like here's what we're gonna here's what we're gonna do for our final assignment 
Well, Sheila being uh, familiar with me, or more so from the first podcast yeah. I did, that was like an intersection of yeah. that, where we, it was not purposely like, we're doing a poem, but just like, what if we learned uh, learned science in a fun, silly way? There were riddles. There were very rarely anything scientifically learned, but the premise was good. And... Uh, yeah. That, that was the idea. I just think yeah. science distilled in some other form to a non-science person is the is the ideal way for it to potentially seep in there. Because mm-hmm. just the just the idea for most people is so boring and so dry. So like, yeah. no, no, no. This is a cool rap, or this. Right. And sometimes the rap is real boring or lame. You're like, right. this is fun for scientists, <laughs> right. no one else. Totally. Yeah. But when it's when it's fun for everyone, then that's great. Yeah. Like yeah. that you've you've unlocked something there. Yeah. Well, you know this because I told you my sister and I have gone back into the archives and we've been re-listening to episodes oh, right. of Professor Blastoff. And my sister uh, was a math major in college. She is an actuary. And so we both, we were just talking about this with um, like episodes we've been listening to as we've been going back through. And um, who's that? And- Andy Cohen? Dr. Cohen? There was someone Sasha that was... Sasha Cohen? So, no. There was someone that you guys would have on a few different times. It was a... He was a scientist. Okay. And he was by far our favorite guest because he was really good at articulating the science, but also was really dry and funny. And it was great because you guys... Oh, I think you played Alex. Out. Alex Pratt? Oh, maybe. Uh-oh. Maybe that's Platt. it. Platt. 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 Oh, okay. But yeah. I mean, that's... So much of what we do as educators, I think, is trying to present information that these students will hopefully use and incorporate in their lives and do it in a memorable, fun way, because that's how most of us want to spend our time. Mm -hmm. And so especially like I mean, I start my summer session on Monday. These students are going to be with me from 8 a.m. to 1245 Monday through Thursday for the next eight weeks. Good luck, everyone. (laughs) But it's a lot of time with me. And so I want to make it as much fun for me and for them so that they like coming to class. This is how they chose to spend their summer, probably because many of them had to take this class now to fit in with their schedules. And I think the more interesting and novel ways that you can approach teaching what is traditionally a very dry subject, the better. Right. Well, I think this is going to be shocking for everyone, but scientists, as <laughs> a general rule, have been terrible yeah. at communicating with non-scientists. Yes. Like, we get very good at writing, well, some of us, maybe not me particularly, but <laughs> get pretty good at writing scientific papers for scientific audiences, for presenting science at scientific conferences. We get good at that. Some people still struggle with it because communication can be hard, but we learn how to do that. We traditionally are very bad at relaying this information to a non-science audience. Mm -hmm. And to be perfectly honest, I think that it's not something we can fix on our own. It's going to require dialogue with people that have more experience talking to non-scientists. Because I can can sit down with Sheila all I want on the drive home and be like, let's come up with this really great idea to relay information to a non-scientist. But ultimately, we're both scientists. And so it helps to interact with other people, have other experiences, and learn from those experiences, too. Even a show like this, I think, would be better. Like, the live shows are always so much more fun. Can I say that with, guys, my students have found your like space cave episodes like oh, really? i think they'll google me honestly <laughs> i think that they do i think they google us and like want to find out what they can about our personal <laughs> lives sometimes and i've had students went in my 
uh, references for my new job. One of my references uh, from who was my boss when I worked for USGS said to the dean of my college, have you listened to her podcast episodes on the show Space Cave? She's so great. She's so funny. And, out- and awesome. like she loves outreach. And that's why I like coming on here, because it's another way that I mean, it's something to put on our CV to say, like, here's that's why we're here. That's why we're to put here. It on our CV. <laughs> Thanks, God. Yeah, it's all for the CV. But really, though, I mean, I have a whole section on my CV that's just outreach because I mean, Davi was saying he joined on the way up. He was saying I joined Twitter for to, because there's like grants you apply for and they want to see your Twitter feed. And I was like, oh, shoot, I just quit Twitter. Like, now I've got to get it back. But um, I think that is something that scientists in our age group. So on the younger side of things, we a lot of us are really make an effort to include outreach as part of what we do because you can't get funding for anything to if you don't have public support yeah and so and not only that but communicating what you're doing and to be able to say like here's why and here's the interesting things that we're coming up with but speaking about science in general i leap at opportunities to do outreach and it's always been something that is important to me because it's fun for me too i feel like i always get a little I was frustrated when I met with like a no thanks or even like just an like the just getting ignored when I reach out to like hey would you like to come mm-hmm. do this thing because I feel like they're either safely in the cocoon of science that is either funded or granted in some way that they don't really have to worry about what if it went away mm-hmm. and most other careers especially the arts you have to think about that yeah. and so having the public on your side like hey we want to see that experiment go through we're gonna do a GoFundMe or whatever it takes mm-hmm. that would make so much more sense to me so and there are opportunities to do that there are public supported funding opportunities and yeah. things like that and experiment.com is one of the big ones but I think it's I'm of two minds to that. Because okay. at some point, yeah, if we do science and we share it just among other scientists, it's never going to turn into action. Mm-hmm. It's never going to go anywhere. Like, who cares that we know this thing if only a select few of us know this thing? Like, yeah. what does that mean? Um, so outreach is really great for getting our information to the general public. Maybe it'll affect policy if it's a certain type of information. Maybe it affects technology improvements if it's other kinds of information. Who knows, right? It can do all sorts of things. But some people are not good at public outreach like some people you might invite to your show say no because they would do a terrible job yeah. if yeah. they came on your it's show true. Yeah, that's true or they have they're affiliated with an, a, an institution or their funding source doesn't permit it right yeah. you know it could be that they should too. be nice about yeah responding. they should be nice about <laughs> but we've had i mean there's been people that we both of us have gone to graduate school with that what davi and i i don't think ever struggled with our public speaking but we knew people that did. If and you did, it, you've really overcome that. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I mean, if there were people, we knew that it was terrifying for them, but it was something you had to do. You had to give an oral presentation for your proposal and go through a qualifying exam and do, uh, what did they, don't, we don't call it a defense, we call it a... Exit seminar. Exit seminar, that's right. <laughs> it is a defense, though, really. <laughs> but like, you have to give a presentation. And then I knew people that had a teaching assistant position and teaching was terrifying oh, yeah. for them just to get in front of a classroom of undergrads that you know arguably don't care as long as they can get the grade they need that's true i mean but i also know that like you know i haven't talked anything about my work on this podcast yet but like i a lot of my work is done with sharks i work with sharks a lot of my colleagues work with sharks there happens to be a lot of 
public attention and people that really want to know about sharks, there's a lot of misinformation. Yeah. Some of my colleagues love talking to the media. Some of my colleagues hate talking to the media. Some of my colleagues used to like talking to the media, mm -hmm. but they have been burned because things that they have said have been misconstrued or shown incorrectly. And they say, well, then I'm not doing it anymore. If, if the media has a direction, they want to tell their story that's going to sell the most articles. Yeah. I'm just not going to do it anymore. And so they don't no longer respond to things like that. And yeah. so I think it's, it's a two-way street. I think that scientists need to communicate more, mm -hmm. and I'm all for that, and I love doing it. Mm -hmm. And I also think that people need to, if scientists are going to communicate, it's nice to have sounding boards that are open to hearing what they say. Yeah. And so, like, the things now that are, everything's a debate. Everything mm -hmm. is a point of, or everyone has going to one-up you on the stats or the facts or something that you miss in a belittling way. And I, I notice now comments, maybe it's, and this, I think, does evolve. Like, the, the interactions of humanity online before was, you're such an idiot. This is, you know, in a link to an article. And now I think people are a little better at being like, I think you might have misspoke here, but in this, in whatever event, here's a link to an article or some stats. I or, think you have really nice friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think on both of those, though, you ha you do have to be so careful because everything can just be a sound bite that's taken completely out of yeah, context. Right. And... You know, you want to make sure that you are heard for the right reasons. I, you just reminded me, Dobby, I thought you were going to talk about this earlier, about getting um, one a shark biologist that we both know who has been on Shark Week before and does not do Shark Week anymore um, because of kind of the... I think that in some ways Shark Week instills a lot of fear. Right. Most shark biologists I know yeah, don't, don't like do it. Shark yeah. Week. Because it's just taken this direction, the top 10 most deadliest sharks. And it's yeah. so silly. But um, that same biologist, uh, I believe we watched this video together, was teaching an evolution class. And it went, this video went viral a few years ago, probably five, six, seven years ago, something like that. And had a student very aggressively confront about evolution and religion and to the point where a security guard was called in and the student was escorted from the room and yeah, the campus the, and the campus oh yeah you're right and the campus and the life of freedom <laughs> yeah it was a pretty wild thing to watch he was a professor I had in graduate school and Davi knows from research so we were like holy crap right. I mean well Yo Wilson who you brought up in the last episode was vilified early oh, on absolutely. You know, like the, it's it's a. I, you, we, I don't think people realize facts, and I know we don't want to use that word all the time. <laughs> but things presented as here's what we know yeah. are met with when, especially when they contend with your deepest beliefs. Mm. That's a very scary proposition oh, to be yeah. the one delivering that. Hey, here's here's something we discovered. No, no, not not to me. It didn't. Right. Yeah. I mean, that even happens in the sciences. Like you've discovered oh, yeah. something new, and you present at the scientific conference, and they go like. Uh, that's not what we know to work. Therefore, <laughs> we are going to turn you into a crazy person with ideas, you know. And yeah, like people don't like to have their dogmas overturned. Right. Although technically, that's what we should be looking for at all times as scientists. At well, least. some of my yeah. favorites, though, in in the literature is when you have like two scientists arguing both sides of a coin back and forth through published literature right. <laughs> and it'll be like it's always reminds me of British Parliament well it's like well the right honorable gentleman and like they're very polite about it but it's like no actually this is what we know to be true and it's like well but we have this new research and this is what we know to be true and I think that what we do and on the research end of our lives is not that much different than what we do in the classroom with 
you know, students with, again, different views that come in and are, they're very staunch. And um, like you were saying, as people get older, maybe going back to some of the stuff that they rebelled against their parents or their family's notions of. But as they get older, they're kind of like, yeah, you know, that is actually kind of true. And I do actually feel that way now as an adult. And then they come into class and that's challenged again because they're presented new evidence. So you have and, you know, you'll have strong personalities that are willing to speak out and talk on every little thing that you present. But I also, most of the time in scientific training, right, we're trained to be skeptics. That's part of becoming a scientist is question everything, look for evidence in everything. Trust so, no one. Right? <laughs> well, trust people as long as you've seen their process. Science, right? the yeah. movie. <laughs> in a world. So um, I think that if I'm asked certain questions, I am going, and I don't know the answer. I don't have, I, I think I know what's going on, but I can't support it. Even if I think it's real, I'm going to say, I, I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. why is this shark here and what's it doing? I, I don't know, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I might have my personal ideas and uh, based on things that I've known, but I don't know the answer to. There are people out there that will call themselves experts that will say anything, mm-hmm. and those people are going to get a platform, mm-hmm. yeah. and they're going to be cited, and they're going to be in every newscast around the world, right. and that information is then going to be passed on for generation to generation. Like <laughs> I have kids when I do these outreach events going like, all right, on the real, though, let's talk about Megalodon. Yeah. Megalodon. And, and the, Megalodon, the Meg. The Meg. Right? <laughs> and Megalodon was a real fish. Mm-hmm. It's been extinct for a million years, you know, or I don't know exactly how long I know, but it's gone. It's no longer around. Uh-huh. We have reasons to believe that we don't see whales washing up with giant bites out of them, <laughs> or any of these things. But they saw it on Discovery Channel. And beyond that, so-and-so who is, you know, let's say an actuary that really likes sharks and has watched Shark Week. my sister It's not your sister. This is not your sister. This is, this is Joe Schmo. Yeah. Um, but, you know, someone who's like, I've watched Shark Week every year. And now I'm an yeah. expert. I, like, I yeah. sit around my Thanksgiving table. I'm a shark expert. Like, yeah. I can tell you anything there is to know about sharks. And my friends and family can support that I am an expert. <laughs> they will say things. And you're like, I'm not willing to dis- refute you because I don't know the answer. I'm not going to say you were wrong. I'm going to say, no, we don't know that. We don't know that. We don't know doesn't make good press. Yeah. Yeah. I think, too, because Javi and I both study species that are popular to like for non-scientists. So Which sharks, is why we and, chose them. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. why. Here's Megafauna. Um, everyone in our lab, in our graduate lab at San Diego State, studied a charismatic megafauna. But um, we have students because of that like shark week or people love turtles they just do inherently and um you do have sort of like self-taught experts that they will challenge you and you have to be so careful because you don't want to just shoot them down in front of a lecture hall and make them feel either bad about themselves or dislike you and that's it for the semester so you have to like yeah yeah, you have to like kind of finesse it a little bit and I think there's other areas of science that probably if you studied certain things, you wouldn't have many armchair experts come in because they're just not as well-known subjects. But for us, that's definitely the case. We have people come in and they know more than you, even though you studied these things for 20 years. That seems like the biggest imbalance currently. I'm an expert. Trust me. Self-professed experts Mm -hmm. get a lot of press, get a lot of attention. Real experts are going, give me a minute, I'm still looking. 
Give, yeah. give me a second. I'm still, I'm still digging. Even though they yeah. have a treasure trove right. of an infinite more knowledge than the self-professed person. Right. That seems to be the plague of our society, or at least one of the major well, ones. Well, one of the things I think you can point to as a perfect example of that is this climate panel that has been assembled. Um, it's like four or five people total. And I don't think there's, is there a climate scientist on so. the panel? I don't think so. <laughs> um, there are scientists. And so that's one of the things, too, that I do talk about with my students as well as you know the like Davi was saying about the source of information and so if you have a geologist speaking about atmospheric and I don't know conservation issues related to biodiversity <laughs> I'm just throwing out jargon but like you know things that are out of their science out of their <laughs> you know science uh, out of their wheelhouse you know etc <laughs> um, but if they're speaking on topics that are out of their area of expertise out of their wheelhouse just because they have a PhD in the sciences does yeah, not mean right. that they know anything about what they're talking about and that's one of the things that you often hear with climate change especially is well this scientist from MIT or from you know whatever school they said it's not real and carbon's actually good for us and it's like we are sure carbon is important to the planet's (laughs) carbon cycle but like there's an imbalance but those are things that students will come to class with well but that's a scientist and it's like all right you're right that is a scientist and you know here's why they might say what they do but they have as much knowledge on climate change as you do mm-hmm. because you night or i do like i'm not a climate scientist and i make that abundantly clear here's my areas of expertise the physicists are so great at that on this show of i think it means all of space and all the way down to the quantum level and they yeah. go I, I don't really know yeah i, I specialize in this right Right. And I, I I appreciate them making that because I don't make the distinction. How could right. I know? And, right. and I would trust them if they guessed at it. Right. So it, it's important that the scientist is the one right. going like, I really can't weigh in. Right. And, and it's funny, though, because it makes really boring podcasts <laughs> or news sometimes. If yeah. everything you ask, you're like, I, I don't know that. And then you're like, well, why, why are you here? Let's like, what can we talk about? <laughs> yeah. But I also want to flip that on its head and say, I am a trained scientist. I have a ton that I can learn from people that aren't scientists. So I am all for you sharing whatever information and experiences you've had in your life. And I will learn from them, too. I am not sitting in an ivory tower. It's just that sometimes people are willing to kind of put their foot down without, you know, really evaluating it as critically as maybe they should but I work with fishermen all the time or I should say fishers because yeah. they're non-gendered fishers I was about fishers. to say and fishing humans I like to say right. fishing people <laughs> um, and they know so much more about some of this stuff than yeah. I do because they are on the water all the time and they're handling fish all way more often than I get to do yeah. so I will learn from them like mm-hmm. no question I'm not going to be like well no I'm a scientist I I think I know this better than you yeah. like that's I mean I'm you, you have information, show me that information. I would love to learn it. You're not going to get anywhere with people if you're like, mm, sorry, I'm the scientist. But it's like, I mean, we, I, I think because of the area that was, well, am I, I don't know, was your area of emphasis conservation? No. No, I was marine. Oh, you were marine. So I was conservation. And um, for our PhD emphasis, to be clear. But in ecology. In ecology, yeah. So, yes. um, 
that one of the, but you know this, one of the main things in marine ecology and conservation ecology and science in general is knowing that there, you are not the only stakeholder involved in an area. And so talking to fisher people or the general public who has an interest in you know, recreational fishing in an area or surfing in an area or whatever it is. There are many people that have a vested interest in where and why there are fish or kelp or whatever it happens to be. And that's another important thing I think that we have to communicate to our students is you may become an expert in a particular field, but that does not mean you are not just a small piece of that puzzle. You know, you are just a small piece of that puzzle. You are not the puzzle, Mm -hmm. you know, and, or the puzzle master maybe would be a better way to put that, but um, you know, that they are part of a team of people that have an interest in things. And so when I was a younger scientist and people would, constantly tell me like oh you you study sea turtles i swim with them in hawaii or i love finding nemo and it's like oh my gosh okay cool and you know i realized though from talking to family and friends it's like yeah but they're just trying to make a connection with what you do and i think through maturity and time you get to that place you're like you're right you know what and that's something i can touch on with someone is you've had a cool experience with something that i research and i care very much about and we have that shared thing and now we have a common ground so we can talk about what i know and what you know and like davi was saying like fisher people often do have a really good idea of where populations of fish are and how they're doing based on, you know, catch per unit effort and whatnot. And our students, I think, are the same way. I tap into so much that they know coming into the classroom that they bring to the table that I might not even know. An example of, you know, something that they have experienced from their own lives. And I love that. I mean, that's, I I think that's why I like teaching too, is we get to constantly learn as well from our students and just being in the field all the time, the field of science, not the field. (laughs) One of the more, I mean, I think the overwhelming thing that sticks with me through this is like, there's a a thought to to the lay person, the non-science person, that there is this place that has all the answers Mm -hmm. and, you know, you pay a tuition to go there and, or, you know, like, and to hear you guys both and, and overwhelming, I think most scientific people say like, we're not, no one really has all Mm -hmm. the answers that's been really revelatory and and hopefully refreshing if someone's listening thinking like these kind of conflicting sides that are but i believe this and i believe this to hear you be open to any thought ideology dogmas even if you will how do you catmas or catmas (laughs) how do you uh how do you navigate that like give me and then this might take me a little while but like (laughs) to set up this as we don't know what this is, what we're experiencing, why we're here, where we even are. We're just all having existence and we're on this thing that we're pretty certain has resources that we're, we're pretty heavily invested in uh, devouring at a rapid rate <laughs> and we're making more of ourselves. If we go back to maybe like just after a common ancestor and we're starting to distance ourselves and we, even after we beat the Neanderthals and then we're, we're heavily outpacing the rest of the species, the charismatic megafauna, maybe we're not 
encroaching on the sea just yet but largely <laughs> to, the land, <laughs> to the land we're we're setting up dominance we're building structures we're, we're spreading out we're moving and then you get in beyond that to like the industrial revolution and you get into domesticating those animals the ones that were not that long ago our prey and saying like you know what it's gotten so easy to hunt and kill you we're gonna just pin you up and when we're ready we'll grab one of you you hang tight <laughs> yeah. and then they go ah the, the game's over the game's over we're, we've won we won by game. a long shot and then that gets all the way advanced into like massive the mega farms and kind of where we are now with the industrial revolution and the results of that and here we are and so you would have a faction of people saying well here's why you should be vegan here's why you shouldn't reproduce here's why you should live in a high rise here's why you shouldn't sprawl you'd have other people that are saying now it's all part of the game we're still playing the game i get mine i kill the spiders anything that encroaches on my territory mm -hmm. it's darwinian or the terms they like to use in that way you could see maybe even here between the two of you there's two conflicting with reproduction and non-reproduction to a certain degree so how when you have students how how do you invite that sort of discussion and i guess uh, moderate it to some degree i mean i love the discussion like mm -hmm. bring discussion all day if mm -hmm. we have to but the key is i don't want your discussion if you're going to just spout off your dogma. Mm -hmm. I want your discussion where you're giving me your supporting evidence. This is why I think this. Okay. This is my experience. This is why I think this. Someone else can be respectful because sure. other people have completely different experiences. And my, the way I, I mean, I have to guide it sometimes in the sense that this is a great discussion. We can continue later. We have other material we have to get <laughs> to. So I won't say we have discussions all day, every day. But if we're having a discussion, all I want is that you are supporting your views with something that is sound mm -hmm. you're not just saying well i think this is how it works and therefore i'm running with it and nothing you say is going to impact me whatsoever yeah so yeah i mean that's why when i was saying i was so moved that i had students who did a 180 on their views of climate change in one semester i did not think i could have that kind of an impact and that was from the eo wilson book and just the facts that i was giving them in class and You know, I, that to me, it's like, man, that's really open-minded because I don't know, I think that's a good age to be, I think a lot of kids, I mean, there are kids, sorry, guys, you are kids at 18, 19, <laughs> um, you don't think you are, but you know, you, you are still, you're starting to test the waters of what you believe in and it's a good time to be open and challenge your own views and do it in a classroom in a constructive way and understand that there will always be in your entire life people that have different views than you. Right. And to, I think, learn that skill in a science classroom is applicable in every facet of their lives. To be able to take in information, respect what someone else is coming from, because here are the, here's the information they're using to support their view. And, you know, we... Right. You, I don't know. I just, I think I've not had a bad experience yet. And I don't know if that speaks to my ability to sort of like tamp down when things are, I can, you can always tell when things are about to escalate a little bit. And that's when maybe you do say, okay, we got to get back to like yeah, yeah. the curriculum. There's, you know, who probably in the classroom is going to be the instigator most of the time. It's pretty obvious, but you know, I think it's, they're adults and treat them like adults know that they should be treating each other with respect. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I also think this, to readdress your, your lead up to that question, it's funny, it's like, have we won? 
I mean, yeah, yeah. There's cockroaches sitting there. Like we could take them out, or let, <laughs> let's just let them implode. Yeah, they'll destroy themselves, and we get everything. Like I don't know if we've won. Are we? Did we win a race, or are we those guys in the marathon that like that sprinted up really fast, <laughs> yeah. and then we're going to burn out? And yeah. they're going like the you know that's the turtle and the hare thing. Like maybe we're the hare. We're running way far ahead, and then we're going to fall asleep under a tree. Turtles always win. Turtles always win. <laughs> um, well, you know. there was an article that came out. That I so when I always come prepared with current events, also because there's inevitably classes where nobody came up with anything, they had a long weekend, whatever. And so I always usually have some current events. And there was one article that came out this past spring that I'm sure you probably both heard of. It was very alarming about insect populations and how endangered and how much worse off they are than we thought that they were. And it's the in, insect apocalypse, <laughs> yeah, basically, it mean, yeah. And I mean, insects of what 10 million animal species. Insects make up 90% of all animals on the planet. And E.O. Wilson actually has talked about them. I mean, he is an insect guy. He's an ant guy. guy yeah. yeah, but um, he has in, um, I think it was in his book, In Search of Nature, which was just kind of a collection of his essays. He talked about how if insects, all insects were to go extinct, in, the human race would be able to survive about 30 to 60 days. And that's it. <laughs> and so... People that, you know, want to argue, oh, well, insects are gross and they're awful and creepy crawlies. I've been able to even change minds of students. They're like, all right, I at least respect them now. But (laughs) it's scary to think about that because if all insects were to go extinct... So the cockroaches probably not win. Who would still be around? Probably archaea and bacteria. And so life will persist. Right. right. We're not ruining the world. We're just ruining our place in it is yeah. what it comes down to. For animals, the animal kingdom and plant, I mean, arguably yeah. eukaryotes in general. Well, I mean, that's the funny thing about being a conservation biologist. Can we... We've extinguished the second episode. Can we? You guys want to go into some bonus content and continue this? I don't want to keep you. Oh, right there. Whatever, it's up to you. Yeah, yeah whatever, whatever you want. You want. Why well, you guys have uh, traffic to get into? So I don't want. Yeah, like, well, keep that's you inevitable. <laughs> no matter what, so we already were talking about that. Okay, well, let me. Yeah, we'll do a little, little bit extra. I have some questions I want to ask. Also. Okay, aren't they just terrific? They made the drive all the way on a Friday from San Diego, battling traffic. And we're just so delightful, not at all perturbed to, to drive back. So I'm thoroughly flattered and um, I just feel very fortunate that they took the time and are just so cool and fun to talk to and nice. And uh, Sheila said she's going to try to keep up her record as I believe she is the most recurring guest in the show's tenure thus far in the catalog. So if I'm wrong on that, let me know. You can always email the show pings at the space cave.com or on twitter.com at space underscore cave. And I've been trying to do the Instagram uh, account, but it keeps telling me there's some unknown network error. So I don't know. I'll keep working away at that, but the new logo will be featured there as well. And whew, that new logo have a look at it. It's also, you can get it as a screen print, but you've been able to do that for years. Uh, just one of the cave posters. So if that interests you, you can go to thespacecave.com and uh, there's a little shop there with some things I've screen printed over the years that uh, are, are little paraphernalia things for the show. You can follow Davi on Twitter. Sheila, as she mentioned, is no longer on it, but I usually tag him in the, uh, or the guests in the tweet that hot tweet that comes out whenever the new episode drops. So you can follow Davi, keep up on what he's working on, what he's doing. It's fun following scientists because they always share interesting links. Uh, Anyway. Okay. I think that's it. Thanks to Dan. 
As always, you can listen to uh, the bonus chat from him is in the Patreon currently where he and I finish our phone conversation. And thanks to Rob Crow for the theme song. Thanks to you for listening. Again, thanks to Quentin for uh, being the newest Patreon person. And oh, also... Uh, thanks to Jesus, who's who was for a while a twenty dollar a month Patreon person. He's since scaled it back to a more reasonable number, but I don't know if I ever personally thanked him for uh, for doing just such an over the top amount of uh, financial assistance for this show. The show is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you, and uh, I really appreciate it. So thanks, Jesus, and we still have to catch up on our our phone chat. I think the last time we talked was right after the election results curious how things have uh transpired since then i don't know if you have listened all that the whole span of the show then you remember that chat we did leave off by saying okay well we'll check in in a couple of years so we should probably do that and if you'd like to talk uh and and be a citizen from outer space or from planet earth on the show you can again email pings at the space cave.com or just tweet if you have suggestions for beer or guests or uh topics whatever else those are the best ways to get in touch. All right, let's get out of here. I believe this might have been a Dan song, or I remember this band somehow, and I thought I had played either them or this song before, but I went and searched and had not. But I like it. Hope you do too. The song is called Fall Down. It's by Crumb. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.